Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. So we've been talking over the last few episodes about the evangelical church here in the United States, and today we turn our attention to music and worship. Now, I'm going to say something very obvious. Music is powerful. It moves our emotions and shapes our desires, and these are not secondary things for a Christian. Just like our minds need instruction, our hearts and wills need to be directed. So today, we discuss how the songs we sing in church, just like the preaching of the word that we hear in church, should be aimed at the people in the pews. Our conversation today is with Tim Bailey, Max Carell, and Jody Killingsworth. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. We were staying downtown on Sunday morning. We went to the... uh, Tridentine Mass Cathedral, <laughs> where they were doing the medieval mass in Latin. Mm. And uh, they did not do the homily in Latin. They did it in English. The priest, before the, the mass, did the homily. And uh, it was about what I have experienced when I have been in Roman Catholic masses which is not very often, which was, it was exceedingly short, exceedingly flaccid, um, exceedingly jovial. There was no authority. There was no improvement. There was no text, although I'm not sure he didn't mention scripture. And it was like a pimple on the back end of a hippopotamus (laughs) in terms of the worship service. So, Jody, <laughs> with that set up. <laughs> Do you mean the homily portion specifically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I was thinking about my experience from childhood and, and when I was in youth of being having family members in the Pentecostal movement, sometimes being asked as a musician to join with them and with their bands and in, in, in playing music for worship services. In their view... If the spirit was really moving, if the service was maximum success, mm. there wouldn't need to be preaching. <laughs> the worship, the singing, the the emotional uh, element of it would be so high that that was that was when things had gone best. When the worship, that is the singing of songs in yeah. particular, or the the listening to music and listening to the spirit through music. Um, would supplant the need for uh, instruction for feeding on the word through a through a person who was appointed to preach, and sometimes I think the pastor would be there prepared to give us a, a sermon, but then would decide, actually, you know what, we don't need that tonight. Well, hmm. we don't need that this morning. What we needed was to sing, and we needed people came forward and they were being healed of things and they were broken and all of this stuff all through the emotional leadership of musicians. Hmm. So, like in the Mass, the Latin Mass, language and communication weren't important. Jody, open that up a little. I've never heard you say that before, and I'm very curious to know what you felt then as a musician, what you felt when you were over in England, and what you feel now. In other words... You're not just making a theological statement about worship there. You're, you were a musician, so talk to us about that. How did you feel about that? 
At the same time, my sister was taking lessons from one of the principal pianists in the city of Springfield, Missouri, who was in the Pentecostal Church's Assemblies of God. And that's like, uh, that's that's where the headquarters internationally of Assemblies of God is. So there's a lot of large Assemblies churches in that area. And that was where family members of mine were connected or influenced by them. And this one particular pianist was who was British um, and was there serving. And she was teaching my sister piano. And she'd say, she'd make jokes about when you modulate up here, yeah, that really brings the spirit. <laughs> Oh my and they would all kind of like, ha, 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 you know, laugh. Now, <laughs> if that, that, there's a lot of that kind of just joking and day-to-day laugh, but there's actually, I experienced it in rehearsals where they would plan in things very intentionally, which were perceived by everybody as being spirit-led, but that actually had been rehearsed. Hmm. So, uh, having lived behind the curtain of that in the rehearsals preparing for the services, I saw that there was, yes, there was some freedom, like we will vamp here for a time and then, and you will, you'll find your way for 10 minutes or whatever. But it was like, it was prepared, it was planned. We knew what would happen when and who gave the cues for transitions and changes and that sort of thing. So, how did I feel about that? Well, that was not my tradition at all. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in a rural community which sing um, the, from the Heavenly Highway hymnal. So, the, the revivalist hymn tradition mm. of camp meetings was our hymnal. Still had shaped notes on the page. Uh, and so, I grew up with the, go- the Southern Gospel hymns were the bread and butter of our worship. So, this was exotic to me. I didn't know what to think about it, but I was very uncomfortable. Why? I wouldn't have known how to articulate it at mm. that time. But I was uncomfortable because of something. I, no one had taught me the importance or centrality of preaching in argument, but they had exempt, they exemplified it. That it was clear in my upbringing that the preaching portion of the service was of supreme importance. That was this irreducible thing that without which we don't have a, a worship service. We don't have. We haven't met. Mm. You can meet for sings, you can do this or that other time, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, prayer meetings, business meetings. There's other purposes to get together. But when we meet together on the Lord's Day, particularly in the morning, it's for preaching and that the worship leading up to it is to help prepare our hearts, it's to give praise to God, all of those things are appropriate. No one ever articulated this, it was just lived out before me. So, when I encountered this very exotic other Pentecostal environment, where this was happening, I was not particularly attracted to it. Hmm. I felt it was manipulative musically, which was, in my opinion, an abuse of music. I felt, I intuitively in my gut felt that 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 just had to be wrong, that the preaching and teaching of God's word has to be important. But isn't part of the purpose of music to lead our emotions and i mean if i want to be crass to manipulate them i mean even isn't that what you're doing even now you're trying to if i'm singing in the congregation or following you right as the worship leader you're trying to take my emotions somewhere right so what's the distinction between what you experiencing back then and what you do now 
there's a lot of answers to that question. What I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is that one abuse of the gift of music, I would affirm that God has given us music and that it's very important and useful to Christians and in service of our devotion to the mm-hmm. Lord. I would not want to ever see the church give up music or give up singing. That no one, I don't think, would make the case that that would be well, godly. And tell them about the decision our elders made in the midst of COVID. Oh, so yeah, in COVID, there were lots of disagreements over um, under what conditions we would meet. Oh, it's acceptable for the civil government to um, to set limits or re- put requirements on the church for whether it would meet, how often it would meet, in what numbers or in force it would meet. Mm-hmm. And um, we submitted on a lot of points that we felt that the government actually had a, a legitimate authority that intersected with the church or that uh, that that they could speak and put requirements on us that were a legitimate exercise of their authority. But we did think that whenever, if they came in and said, no, you may not sing because of COVID, mm. that that was so central to God's uh, clear commands and to the heart of Christian worship that we would have to say no. And that was a conscious decision by the Board of Elders, the session, that we will not submit. We will not worship without singing. So and central it is to it is our central. Yeah. 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 So I so then go ahead. As a musician, you're very sensitive to the issue of manipulation, and Plato. In the Republic, make the case that it is necessary for the state to govern the music because of how manipulative or powerful. How powerful. And so, help us on this. <laughs> Haven't thought about this in a while. Um, but you have thought about it carefully. I believe I have. Yes, you have. So, yes, Plato did believe that... Um, Music in different tonalities, modes, scales of music had their powerful and moral influence over mm. the shaping of young men uh, for for Athens. And he prescribed which modes and tonalities they could and couldn't listen to, uh, <laughs> or he theorized about what, what should be enforced in their education, and that there were limits in his view of what would lead to degeneracy on their part or to moral living and higher forms of living, um, which is what he believed that they were called to and that the state had an interest in. Um, And that's handy because it affirms, even if we don't agree with him in his views, um, totally or in specifically rather, I think it affirms what we all know is music is very powerful. Mm -hmm. It does move our hearts even people who we describe as a cold fish like music. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people who are disembodied brains, some of, actually, some of the ones who are disembodied brains love music most. <laughs> That's really pretty funny. <laughs> <clears throat> music moves us yeah. and in ways that are really hard to describe or talk about. It's notoriously difficult, the subject of music, to to talk about in academic writing or to describe what's happening, what the music does or doesn't do and how it does it. That's, mm-hmm. an, that's a notoriously difficult problem. Mm-hmm. So, musicologists end up talking about the score 
the notes on the page because that's the that's objective, objective. Thing. you, can, you yeah. can analyze that the way new testament exegetes talk about scripture <laughs> the, being the, the text, text. <laughs> <laughs> and so mu- musicology in in the university specializes in those time periods of music where there's notation partly because that's the record the, that's the objective record um, that we have before us you, music that but this is all just to say that music is is comes and it goes as soon as it is the note has taken shape mm. it has left hmm. and you can't grab it anymore unlike a painting on the wall which you can stand back and all talk about there it is well that red complements that blue in a certain way mm. and, every, and it stays there you go away come back it's there again hmm. music is performed it's lived and it here it's here and then it's gone but that's just a unique thing about the medium of music, but it also has its unique influence on our affections and in our heart and our feelings. Mm-hmm. And it's a great blessing of God to have given it to us as men because it helps us process our feelings. I think that's what music does. It helps. It's a, it's a language which we can use to process the difficulties, the joys, the highs and the lows of life and everything in between. So God has given his people this wonderful gift to express themselves and to process their feelings and emotions and their love of mm. the Lord. Mm. And not just to not just to give them an outlet for the feelings that are you know a spring from which to that the the thoughts of their heart can flow but also something that comes back and even instructs our hearts how to feel. Mhm. In, a, mm-hmm. in an appropriate way. And the what is and isn't appropriate um, is an important, in terms of our feelings, is an important kind of discussion to have. Mm-hmm. But I, what I love about the Psalms is that it, it struck, instructs us that a whole lot of feelings are appropriate. Con- mm. Especially, I think the Psalms are instructive in, in helping to see that the darker, more difficult, more tumultuous feelings that are common to man are not um, forbidden. Mm. They're not supposed to be stuffed. They're actually <laughs> to be brought into worship. Mm. That the struggles, the deep struggles of our souls, the great fears and anxieties of our lives um, are to be brought in worship before the Lord and offered to him in prayer and praise. In the book of Romans, it talks about how we don't even know how to pray as we ought, um, but the Holy the Holy Spirit's given to us, and He prays on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And I think that that's a wonderful reassurance from God that we often don't know how to pray as we should, and that when that time comes, when those moments come, we don't know what to ask. We have this assurance that the Holy Spirit's there interceding for us. Can I interrupt for a second and give an example of what you're talking about? I'll never forget, my brother David turned me on to a three-volume set of Anglican chant, the Psalms of David. Do you remember who the uh, choir is that does those CDs? You can add it. King's Choir, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. But anyhow, I'll never forget listening for the first time to them singing, By the waters of Babylon, we sat and wept. And this is the text they were singing. It's Psalm 137. And God's people are in captivity. 
So this is, you know, the, I think people listening to you would automatically say the imprecatory psalms. Yeah. You know, but this is not strictly an imprecatory psalm. This is a, a wonderful, grieving, mourning, raw, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So Zion, their homeland. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. And then at the end of this, in this, in this Anglican chant, the, the choir goes in, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was. And, and, and it's, it's just one of the most powerful pieces of music I've ever heard. And obviously, like you said, I can't describe it. But that's the thing that has just driven me crazy. And I remember saying this to you when you first came here as a musician, that all the contemporary Christian music only had to do with crescendos and victory. There was no judgment. There was no mourning. There was no hell. You know, though Satan with his devils filled should threaten to, mm. you know, the Reformation, there were real enemies. So I appreciate you saying that the Psalms are our psalm book, and boy, they do give utter to not just the pretty feminine I would almost say that in the Reformed Church today, any appeal to the emotions, whether it's musical or in preaching, mm-hmm. any, is verboten. Hmm. And I believe that it is destructive of worship and destructive of preaching. And I think we've fallen so far over trying to, to correct for the second great awakening for revivalism for all these things that calvin has a beautiful uh statement where uh he's commenting on acts 20 the very end of the chapter where paul finally after warning the elders of ephesus he says goodbye to them he says you're not going to see me again and then it says that they just kissed and kissed and hugged and hugged down there at the harbor of miletus and and cried and kissed and hugged and you know it's like a it's like it's like a dutchman's nightmare (laughs) you know (laughs) and and he says, and let it be noted here that God has given us the emotions for a purpose and that we ought not to shut the emotions down. Mm-hmm. And I've always been struck maybe more by Calvin's comment on it, but I think that that's dead in the church today. I, 
I think that when, when it comes to music, we think the best music is the music that uh, has the least connection with us emotionally. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Well, something I think worth noting is that Augustine talks about music and its power in his confessions and notes uh, questions. He, he acknowledges his love of music, love particularly of music in worship, but he also questions his love of it. Maybe it's inordinate and maybe mm. it would be better if the, the words were just presented without the music because he finds that suddenly he, he may be more moved by the music than the words mm. and that concerns him. And I, th I think what Calvin says, what he says about shouldn't be shut down. And in his preface to the Geneva Psalter says, and so therefore we seek a godly use of music mm. and art. And Augustine questions its power and, and, and wonders whether he doesn't, it's, isn't it so dangerous that it, it, it woos to itself so powerfully that maybe it's, I don't know, he's uncomfortable with it, mm -hmm. loves it, but he's worried about how much he loves it. That's often where God is, particularly with the most powerful things in the world. That's often where God has us uh, live. The things can be abused. Mm -hmm. The better the thing is, the more powerfully it can be abused. You think about this with sex. Mm -hmm. Sex is a, a beautiful, wonderful gift from God so powerful that it can be abused in the most awful ways and is music is kind of like that i think is a powerful force in the world but it has it's clearly a part of christian worship by god's design that we must be good stewards of and use um and i think that to fail to use it to specialize in forms of music that are um safe which would be what? I mean, let's get painful here. And let me just give your credentials for a second. Joseph, uh, Jody is an early music uh, expert. His specialty is uh, early music violin. Yeah. He trained at the Royal Conservatory over in Manchester, England. Um, came here on a high scholarship for, uh, set apart for evangelicals at the best schools to get your what? Doctorate music. Not performance. In performance. In performance. And so all the credentials of our church are highbrow, prig, P-R-I-G, classical, early, harmony. We have a bunch of voices and always have, you know, opera people. And so with that as a background, then go ahead. About safety. Yeah, what is safety? Well, one, there's a, huh. in Again, other words, you're speaking negatively about safety. Yes, I'm speaking negatively okay. about. It. Well, one one extreme about safety would be to to implement what Augustine contemplated, which would be to remove music. That's like we I, we should absolutely not. That's totally safe. That is to remove. The potential for misuse entirely by just removing the thing. Uh, on the other hand, it's to say music is a wonderful gift. We just can do anything with it. Um, we it's meant to move our hearts. So let's move hearts with it, and and to not have any self critical capacity. And then in the middle is this range, and where a lot of reformed conservative traditional churches land with that is 
they want to they want to live over here near not throwing music out because they they prize music but they want to live over here where music is a museum piece that's another form of safety to uh, we have offertories we sing hymns we celebrate the traditions of the past. We think it's important as a church to keep certain traditions alive, hymns alive, um, singing with just voices without instruments alive. Those traditions we think are important. But to, to only do that is to fail to recognize that we live in a particular day where very few people are acculturated to those kinds of traditions and forms and norms but rather have grown up listening to the radio, listening to country music, listening to, to folk music, playing um, as a family, as a family band or in, with bluegrass. There's a whole, there's all these styles that are more common and hymn singing is not common. I remember maybe in our grandparents' generation, it would have been common cultural lingo, much more common at least to get together and sing hymns as a cultural uh, experience. That was date night. <laughs> as date night. We do not live in that world. That world is long gone. We can mourn many things about it being gone, but it's gone. If we're going to have a ministry to, to people coming in from the outside who have not grown up, in a church setting or culture and we're going to actually speak to them and move their hearts in a way that we that um, we believe is appropriate to the truths conveyed in the songs we must speak a common language musically so when i came here to bloomington for a doctorate in music i the lord led me to trinity and was a year or so in was given responsibility by the elders to to start to lead the musical portions of our services and to lead the and oversee the band choose songs lead the band to prepare them prior to my coming the elders had decided that um this was probably several years before i came the elders had decided and determined that um for reasons i think you probably should speak to tim or you max that, that we would not be any longer a hymn book singing, piano-led or organ-led congregation, but we would be led by common instruments, guitars, bass, drums, keyboards. That was helpful to me because there was just, there was something in place. A decision had been made. It had been implemented before I came. I didn't have to question it. I was simply given the responsibility of fulfilling the vision, of making it live. So prior to Jody coming, I want to tell about a few things. Number one, there was a man in our church named Marcos Cavalcante. Marcos was a Brazilian jazz guitarist, and he was brilliant. You can find recordings of him. Marcos came here to get his degree. He was a fan favorite because at that point, Brazilian jazz, and the whole genre was cool, hip. 
And Marcus went to the Assemblies of God Church for a while, and I'm not sure why, but he ended up coming over to this church with his wife and his two sons. And when he came, I said to him, you know, we'd love to have you help to lead in worship. And he said no. And we were very close, you know, very close. And so he wasn't saying no to be rude. He wasn't saying no because he was unsympathetic. And I said, really, Marcus, why? And he said, because if I get up in a worship service with a guitar, he says, everybody will treat me like a god. I don't want that. And I didn't know what to say to him because I didn't want people treating him like a god. And I didn't want him to have temptations that he felt he couldn't withstand. You know, and then he said, you know something? He said, the thing I hate most is I absolutely hate it when musicians at the keyboard or with a guitar will play behind a prayer. And I remember him saying this and just looking at him, you know, I was learning as he talked. And I said, why, Marcus? And he said, because I'm a musician. He said, I can tell you it precisely what emotion and what thought they are getting you to think and feel because of the courting and the progressions. Mm. And he said, I hate that, you know? And Marcus was not a guy to talk about things that he would hate. Mm. And so that made me sort of begin to track the issue of our worship and musicians. On our board of elders, we had the largest uh, classical vinyl collector in the world and a man whose own personal collection was 60,000 records. And he put out the biennial price list for all classical vinyl. All right. He was one of our elders. Another one was a guy that had completed everything but his final like dissertation for a PhD in musicology. So I could go through a whole bunch of names of people who were at our church at that time, all of whom were opera or Marcus was far and away the most contemporary. Everybody else was highbrow. And it was those people who made the decision that we would not have highbrow music anymore. And the reason that we made the decision was that we realized that our worship had become a museum piece and that we were all taking pride in our four-part harmony and that, you know, if you read Life Together by Bonhoeffer, he stops and talks about how the, uh, no, I can't remember, the Moravians, he says that they have a principle against parts when they sing. They require unison. And he actually recommends it in Life Together, Bonhoeffer. Yeah. And so we felt that we needed to reprint of our pride, but what? Snobbery. Yeah, of our snobbery. And that if people came to our church, what we really wanted was that they would be open to the preaching of the Word. And so we began to think, okay, the preaching of the Word here is to the conscience, and it calls for repentance. It is a rude awakening to people flattered by social media and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is try to give them places on the, cl the cliff face that they can at least grab onto with their fingernails. And that's what we felt hmm. was the reason that we wanted to have music in the vulgar tongue, as the reformers would call it. Music that in its beat, in its... I don't know the, the musical vocabulary, but the instrumentation, the, the timing, I don't know, that it would be something that they could actually. Now, that does not mean 
that we wanted to use CCM. Mm. We we hated it. Yeah. You know, we had people that grew up at the church where all the CCM people went down in Nashville. You know, Scotty, what's his face's church PCA, and uh, <clears throat> they didn't want CCM because the CCM was vacuous. It was vapid. It was <laughs> all those V words, you know. So what it focused on was we want to use the contemporary instrumentation and contemporary tongue of music, but we want the lyrics to be. And so now I'm, you know, I'm thinking about musicians coming in here. And can I just go interrupt ahead, you for a second? Yeah. Because I, I, I thought you're, the connection you just made there was very interesting. We we started this conversation purportedly about preaching. Yeah, right? yeah. But then we went into a long discourse about music, and what you did just there was tie the music back to the yeah, preaching. it has to be the servant. Well, right. And But then you kept using the word contemporary, and I don't think that quite gets at it, because it's not just that it's contemporary. Vulgar. Yeah, maybe vulgar would be And I know people better. are going to bristle at my use of that term, but that was... That was the reform of worship at the time of Calvin and Luther. Yeah, we use the word vulgar as a historical allusion to a principle central to the Reformation, um, of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, where it was a restoring of the, the common languages into worship so that people could read, hear, sing with understanding. Mm. They would hear preaching in their tongue, their native tongue. That was revolutionary at the time. It had been maybe centuries since they had received that. Mm -hmm. They began to sing again as congregations and not, whereas before it had been professionalized, the choirs, the the monks the perform, harmonies. performed this and in, performed it in in ecclesiastical language of Latin mm -hmm. and in with complexities that they could not, they could appreciate as angelic and 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 very fine but nobody was belting it out in the no ale house on the weekend <laughs> you couldn't possibly it was meant to be out there and separate and above you and then suddenly the reformers are coming along and saying no you are to sing this is this is in obedience to scripture we are as the people of god are to sing here are songs for you to sing mm -hmm. and here are tunes that you know and here are words um, that you can understand they're right from God's word, most often the Psalms, and put but to not tunes, always, <laughs> but not always, and put two tunes that were common to the people. So the vulgar tongue is is central to the Reformation and was central to the elders of this church thinking through what it would do with music and why. So I, I want to say it's almost like I need to issue a warning to the listener. So let the listener understand that. The songs are for you to sing in worship. And maybe that sounds obvious. You're there to open your heart to God, ultimately to open your heart to the man who's about to preach to you the word of God. And that is the point of it. If you're there because you want a performance or because you want lofty music or whatever else, then, then, then you're missing the point. Is, does that make sense? It does make sense. I th I've definitely experienced... In my musical career, I have it has led me both into low and high churches, all kinds of styles. And uh, being a Christian, being a Christian musician, I was found mm -hmm. myself in churches a lot. Um, and in the high churches, in particular, 
Well, it can be in both. Both in low and high can favor a a performance model mm-hmm. of of worship leadership. Where even so, yeah, there's there's, all there's kinds plenty of, of mega churches or whatever that have the band up front with the lights and and whatever. And it's or a the, if the leader, yeah, and the leader sings in such a way as to be soloistic, individualistic, mm. too much character mm. in the style and the nuance and the shape of lines and phrases that people can't actually sing. Uh, Bob Dylan once noted <laughs> the difference between um, group sing. Tunes that can mm. are conducive to campfire groups of people singing, and and tunes and 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 styles that are conducive only to soloistic. There, there are these differences that you can identify in the in the worship of God. It is for the body to sing together. Mm. I think there are places for individual expressions and words. Sure. Don Spady sing an offertory, or others sing a solo, or even just the choir sing. There's place for that, but generally speaking. The backbone of Christian worship is congregational group sing, mm. and that puts limits on what is practical, possible, and wise. Thanks for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and our conversation today was with Tim Bailey, Max Carell, and Jody Killingsworth. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Cheers. <laughs>